Well, I'm sorry. <clears throat> I know it's hard to listen to, but it doesn't hurt. So don't cringe for me when I'm speaking, okay? And I sure hate bringing water up here, but I think that's the only way we'll get through today. Turn with me. Uh, we're in Genesis. This is our third week of our study in Genesis. We're still here in chapter 1. And let me just answer a quick question while you're turning there. Why study Genesis? We study Genesis because Satan's attack on the Word of God continues today just like it did in Genesis. If you remember in Genesis 3, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks, when Satan tempted Eve, he asked her, did God really say? And the reason he asked that question, and he was not only undermining God's Word, but trying to undermine her own trust and faith in the Creator. And that is the exact same uh, tactic. It's a very intentional attack, and it's the exact same tactic that Satan still is using today. Now, the attack on our day is built on two related lies that we are addressing here in Genesis. The first is that the earth is millions or even billions of years old. And the second is that humans evolved from ape-like ancestors. Now, those are two unfounded beliefs. You can, you can call them theories, I call them lies, but those two beliefs have shaken and shattered many people's ability to trust in God's Word. And as a result, uh, we live in a culture that basically has rejected Scripture and made it irrelevant to our day. And so you and I, as believers, as followers of Christ, we need to know what we believe, we need to know what God's Word says, and we need to know that individually and personally. Now, you can have a, a pastor or a Sunday school teacher that can help you know the Word of God, but they can't help you stand on the Word of God. They can equip and they can encourage you, but your faith, how strong your faith is, is going to be dependent on your personal grasp of this book. And that's the reason we're in Genesis these weeks. You know, I've, we've got a lot of uh, high school students in the room, and I've quoted this stat many times, as many youth pastors have. It's a known fact that somewhere between 65 and 80 percent of high schoolers check out of church when they go off to college. And a lot of studies have begun to determine what is it that these, that these seniors, as they leave high school and go off to college, what is it they're not getting? What is it that keeps them from being grounded in their faith? And it's been discovered that the number one problem that causes young adults to abandon their faith is unanswered questions about evolutionary ideas. Now you think about that, if you get bombarded with evolutionary ideas, you begin to think those things are the truth, why would you believe a book that starts with a fable at the very beginning? And so we're addressing what God's Word says. We have to understand what God's Word says. When you understand what the Word says, it becomes fairly easy to uh, refute the theories of man. The problem is we don't know the Word, and that's not just students. That's many of us as, as adults as well. We know some stories. Maybe we know some general principles or general truths, but we don't really know. Just like Eve, we don't really know what God said. And so when someone begins to ask the question, well, did God really say this? Listen, there are clear answers in this book. The problem is not the lack of clarity. The problem is us not spending the time we need to dig those answers out. If someone asks you a question that you don't know the answer to, it doesn't mean there's no answer. It means you haven't discovered the answer yet. And if someone makes an, an, an argument or, or a statement that sounds contrary to Scripture and you can't find the answer, you don't throw out Scripture. You dig a little deeper and you go a little farther and you let God reveal to you what His Word says. Listen, God's Word is eternal. And God's Word will outlast any human argument, anything that humanistic man comes up with. God's Word will answer it. And if we, if we hold to the truth and we let it speak 
we're going to discover the words that Paul said in Romans chapter 3 and verse 4, let God be true and every man a liar. Any truth that doesn't stand up to the scrutiny of God's word is a lie. Any man who claims a truth that does not stand up to the scrutiny of God's word is a liar. And so we need to be founded well into the word of God, and that's why we're starting in the very beginning in the book of Genesis. Let's jump back into the narrative in chapter 1 and verse 14. And let's keep in mind the theory of evolution and an earth that are millions, that's millions or even billions of years old are not fact. They're not fact. What they are is a misrepresentation of scientific evidence. It's things that men have determined or dreamed up in order to answer some unanswered questions that they haven't found in the Word of God. Now, the language of Genesis um, is not poetic as some sections of Old Testament Scripture are. And don't hear me saying that poetic uh, language is not factual. I just want to point out the language of Genesis is not poetic, but it is historical. It's not written as an allegory. It's not written as symbolism. It's historical language. All right, I appreciate Chris reading. That'll save me a little bit of a voice this morning. But we started uh, reading this morning in day four. That's verses 14 through 19. And you notice that phrase that begins every day is this phrase, and God said. What that tells us is there is no process, there's no elapse, no, no passing of time. God didn't start creation and then and let it go on to complete itself. God spoke creation into existence completely. He said it and it was there. Now, you know that God, we covered last week, God made light on day one. On day four, where it says, let there be lights, he's making, uh, literally, the translation would be light givers. The things that he's making on day four are sources for the light that he'd already created. And of course, you have the greater light, which is the sun. You have the lesser light, which is the moon. The sun rules the day. The moon rules the night. The moon doesn't actually create its own light. It just reflects light. And by the way, that's a great picture of our relationship with Christ. When you think of, of the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, 16, that we're to let our light shine before men, that they may see our good works and give glory to the Father in heaven, the only way our light shines is if we're reflecting the light of Christ, if we have a relationship with Christ and we're walking with Christ. It says he made the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. <clears throat> That's interesting. It's almost a passing comment. In fact, in the King James, it just kind of, it's kind of set off by itself. He made the stars also. He made the sun. He made the light. Oh, and by the way, he made the stars. Here's what's crazy about that. You, you can look at that little phrase and kind of fly right past it, but stop and let it roll around in your mind for a minute, what it means that he made the stars. Scientists estimate that in our galaxy alone, there are 100 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. In the universe that is known to us, there are one septillion stars. That's one intended the 24th power. That's one with 24 zeros after it. But don't picture in your mind that God just took a bunch of matter and flung it out there and made stars. Listen to what, listen what the psalmist said in the 147th Psalm. And by the way, the 147th Psalm was a psalm that was written for the brokenhearted, written for those who are really struggling. Listen to what he says about the stars. He determines the number of the stars, but can anybody in here count to one septillion, by the way? He determines the number of the stars. Listen, he gives to all of them their names. One septillion stars, and God named every one of the septillion stars. How does that help the brokenhearted? 
when we're at a place of, of a difficulty or desperation in our lives, we realize if God has that much concern that he would bother to name one septillion stars, how much more concern does he have for us and for our needs? Psalm 1911 says that God made the heavens to declare his glory. Listen, when you consider the number of the stars, and when you consider the vastness of space that holds those stars, I mean, what would it take to hold one septillion stars? When you consider that, it's just a small glimpse of the infiniteness of God's power and God's glory. Look at verse 14. <clears throat> tells us the lights, the sun, the moon, the stars were created for signs and for seasons, for days and for years. I can't even begin to get into intricacies this morning. I had a conversation with a guy before service started, the intricacies of the earth and its tilt and the wobble that's a part of that tilt and the fact that there's 365 days and the earth rotates and it, and it rotates around the sun and, and all of those things that God put in place that the earth rotates every 24 hours. Why? For our survival. He made it just for us. And verse 14 says, he established our days and nights, the seasons of the year. Why? Because all those things testify to the greatness of God. If those things didn't happen, we wouldn't be here. The earth would not be able to sustain us. But God did all that to give him glory. And we're going to see in a few weeks in Genesis 8, God declares that the seasons and the days and the nights will not cease until Christ returns. Earth's not going to end until Christ returns. And we don't even have time to go into all the complexities of the solar system. The fact that there are stars that orbit each other. There are entire star systems <clears throat> that revolve around a center mass. The fact that stars, even though there's one septillion of them, they're like human fingerprints. You can take all the stars in the universe and you'll find there's nothing about them that is common to all of them. They're that distinct and that difference. One septillion. Of course, if you don't accept the testimony of God's word that's recorded here about the world and how he made it, you're left with spontaneous generation. There, there's no other alternative. You, you have to believe, if you don't believe God's word, you have to believe that the entire universe and all that is in it was a result of some spontaneous process. That there were spontaneous generated cells and spontaneous generated gases which aligned themselves somehow into an upward mobility where there was increasing complexity over billions of years to create the universe. That's the only alternative you have other than the truth of God's word. Listen, can we remind ourselves that evolution has never been observed? We've never seen it observed. In all the years that man has been alive and has been able to record history, no one has seen and observed evolution happen. Evolution has never been proven. It's impossible. Spontaneous generation is impossible. Simplicity becoming complexity by chance over time is impossible. Let me say that again. Simplicity becoming complexity by chance over time is impossible. Look around the room. What you see are complex creatures. They didn't evolve. They were made by God. Day five. Let's move on. Day five, verses 20 through 23. In day five, <clears throat> God speaks into existence flying creatures and sea creatures. Look at verse 21. Look at this phrase. 
He speaks these creatures into existence according to their kinds. God put into each creature, in, in their DNA, he, he put in their DNA information that allows variations in a kind or in a species, but a kind does not change to evolve into another kind. He made them according to their kinds, and then he told them to multiply. They're going to multiply according to their kinds. A sea creature is not going to become a bird or vice versa. There may be great variation within a kind, but there's not moving from one kind to another kind. Let, let me say it with, with great simplicity so even the youngest person in the room can understand. There are currently 195 recognized breeds of dogs, canines. That's variation within a kind. Canine is a kind. There are 195 recognized breeds. And I probably didn't count your mutt that you've got at home, Okay. A cat is a feline. I don't know how many breeds of cats there are because I don't like cats. I didn't look it up. <laughs> Sorry if that offends you, okay? Send an email to jmiller.gsfpc.org. <laughs> cat is a feline. A cat is different from a canine. Two different kinds. Therefore, a dog will never become a cat no matter how much he wants to, or she. Did y'all get it mixed up when you were a kid? I thought cats were the females and dogs were the males. Did y'all have that? Okay, that's not just me. All right, a dog can never become a cat, no matter how much that dog wants to become a cat. Now, just a side note, in case you wonder, um, day five makes clear which came first, the chicken or the egg. If you've ever wondered that, it's right there in day five. So which is it? Y'all don't sound very confident chicken. Yes, the chicken came first. And then they were told to multiply according to their kind. Now, I've mentioned this before. I'm probably going to mention it a lot during this series. God, as the creator, made everything. Therefore, everything belongs to him. So, he has the right to tell his creation what to do. That's a vital principle. You need to be sure you've got that. God as creator made everything. Therefore, everything belongs to him, so he has the right to tell his creation what to do. You know, it's interesting. If you look even in Scripture, you see the creation understands this. The birds understand this. Go to 1 Kings 17. Elijah has confronted Ahab. There's drought in the land. Elijah has been hidden away by God for three years. Elijah's been hidden away from God at a place a brook called Cherith. And God tells the ravens to go and take care of his needs for food. And every morning and every evening, the ravens deliver bread and meat to Elijah. Let me tell you why I mentioned that. I want you to understand why evolutionists are willing to embrace all sorts of outrageous, unfounded claims. Here's why. They don't want to believe God created them. They certainly don't want to believe that God owns them. And they certainly don't want God telling them what to do. They reject the lordship of Christ. That's foundational for an evolutionist. That's why they have to have evolution. If you're going to deny the existence of God, you've got to explain the existence of man. Day five included life in the seas. Life in the seas did not evolve from life on the land 
Life on the land hadn't even been created yet. Life on the land doesn't uh, evolve from life in the seas. God created every living creature according to its kind. Now, do we have all those kinds today? Maybe not. We certainly don't have all the species today. We know that, that on, on a regular course, marine and land animals and, and creatures are extinct. But do you remember, those of you that, that have already been through school and you're out of school, do you remember hearing in school that there were many species of prehistoric creatures that became extinct? I remember seeing uh, sketches and even photographic renderings of what some of these prehistoric creatures may have looked like. We wouldn't know what prehistoric creatures would look like. You know why? There are no prehistoric creatures. There is no prehistory except for God. Day six. And this is a long section, verses 24 through the end of the chapter. On day six, God made land animals, and he made two humans. And look, there's that phrase again, according to their kinds. Each kind will only reproduce its own kind. Again, in the DNA that God placed within those kinds, there's, there's an allowance for great variation within a kind, but a kind cannot evolve into another kind. It's interesting, evolutionists laugh and kind of mock of the flood story in chapter 7 and 8, and one of the reasons they mock that is they say, well, um, there's no way that Noah could have taken two of each kind of land and air-breathing animals into the ark. There'd be too many to fit. Well, remember the word kind refers to the family level of classification, like with the dogs, canines. Noah didn't take 195 different breeds of canines onto the ark. He took two. And scientists have estimated that the maximum number of kinds that there could have been at Noah's time that he would have taken onto the ark, the maximum number would have been 1,400, probably closer to about 1,000. Any of you ever been to the, uh, is it called the Ark Encounter? Ark, been there? Anybody? Need to go. Need to take your kids. It will open your eyes to the truth of Scripture. It was very, very easy for Noah to have had that many kinds on the ark. Okay, look back at verse 24. Look at this phrase. Living creatures. It's the same phrase used in, in verse 20 of day 5, where God made the sea and, and uh, the creatures in the sea, the birds that fly, and now we see it here in, in chapter, or day 6 of uh, man and of the creatures on the land, living creatures. The word living is translated from the Hebrew word nephesh. Man as a living creature has nephesh. Now, if you want to glance back at the creation of plants, you won't see living creatures. In, in the biblical sense, plants are not considered living. Now, I recognize in our yards we go, well, that died or that one's living. But plants are not considered living creatures because they don't have nephesh. Nephesh is sometimes translated soul. So nephesh, or, or the word for living creatures, is the animating force of living creatures. So according to Scripture, man and animals both have nephesh, or both have a soul, but there is a distinct difference in the soul of man and the soul of animals. For, for the animal, the soul is just the animating force. There, there's no biblical indication that it's an eternal soul. But for man, the soul is not only the animating factor, but it's the seat of logic and reason and emotion and conscience. It's much different from the animals. A human soul 
is eternal. Human soul is eternal. That's important for us to, to think about and to recognize that when our life on this earth is finished, that's not the end. A human soul will last for all of eternity, and that's all human souls. Some of those human souls will spend eternity in the presence of God in a place called heaven. But even those who don't know God, those who never profess their faith in Christ, those who never surrender their lives to Christ as Savior and Lord, even their souls will live eternally in a place called hell, where there's incredible torment all the time. A human soul is eternal. Chapter 1, verse 27, we just looked at, Chris read a few moments ago, says that man is made in the image of God. That's what's different about the soul of man. Next week, we'll get into chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 7, it says, God breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life. Man was not created the same way that animals were. You don't see God breathing the breath of life into the animals that he created. Animals don't have an eternal soul. Jesus died, and he rose again to remove the penalty of sin for humans so that humans could have, the soul of man could have the gift of eternal life. We also see that man is created uniquely with the words that God used. Look back where he created plants and animals, and you'll see this phrase, let the earth bring forth. Let the earth bring forth vegetation of every time, kind. Let the earth bring forth creatures of the sea, birds of the air, creatures that, that walk on land. But look at verse 26. God doesn't say, let the earth bring forth man. He says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. What is that referring to when he says, let us make man in our image? It's not referring to man's body. It's referring to his soul. We have minds that can use logic and can reason. We have complex language skills. Most of us have complex language skills where we can communicate our needs and, and abstract concepts. We can design and we can build and we can express ourselves artistically. We have a conscience. We know right and wrong. We have a spirit. And that is the most distinguishing characteristic we have. We have a spirit so that we can connect with the spirit of God. Let us make man in our image. Now, before we look at the instruction God gave to the man and woman he created, look one more time at verse 27. The word man in the Hebrew is the word Adam. That's where we get the name Adam. And it's closely related to the Hebrew word for ground, Adamah. Well, we know Adam was created from the dust of the what? The ground. And so, in chapter 2 and verse 7, where it says, God formed man from the dust of the ground, man was given the name Adam because he came from the ground. But the word Adam is not just the name of the first man. It's inclusive of all human beings, male and female. God made man. Verse 27 says, he made humans, and he made them in two genders, male and female. So according to the scripture, a human being is either male or female. There aren't any other genders, and one gender can't change to another gender. In your DNA, you and I have 46 pairs of chromosomes. The 23rd pair determines if in the 23rd pair you have an X and a Y, you're a male. If you have an X and an X, you're a female. 
Those chromosomes are set by God. You can't change them. You can't manipulate them. You can't make them read differently. It doesn't matter what you do chemically. It doesn't matter what you do physically to a body. A female can't change into a male, and a male can't change into a female. And I'm sorry if that offends people in our day and our culture. I'm just, it's not my opinion. I'm telling you what God's Word says. And I'll tell you this, I won't be surprised at all if one day in the near future, Genesis is declared hate speech. I won't be surprised at all if one day in the future, speaking from God's Word, or at least certain parts of it, is outlawed. Our culture hates the truth of the Word of God, and I say that to you because you've got to decide now whether or not you're going to truly believe God's Word and follow God's ways or not. The attack is coming. Some of you have grown up in church, probably remember the old hymn, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. I don't know what number of verse it is. We used to sing all the verses. I don't know what number of verse it is, but one of the verses says, though none go with me, I still will follow. That day may be coming. Well, the balance of chapter 1 and, and day 6, God gives the dominion mandate. Man is given the role of caretaker. He has a work to do. Listen, men, work is not a curse. Work existed before Adam and Eve were cursed because of their sin. Work is a good thing. God gives men work to do. The curse was that work became hard. But God gave man the, the role of caretaker of the garden. He's the steward of the resources that God made. What, is, what does it mean to be a steward? Well, you have to take care of those resources to use them wisely, but they're made for your use. Listen, we're not the plague that modern environmentalists claim. Man has more value than Mother Nature, okay? I can't tell you how much, and you, you'll know this because you know where I stand, I can't tell you how much it disturbs me to see all the stuff about saving the whales and, oh, the, is it SPCA commercials of giving X amount of dollars a month to save? I, I'm all about, I love dogs. Again, I don't prefer cats, but I love dogs. I'm all about dogs not suffering. What about babies? God created man with the highest value of everything he made. Yes, we're supposed to take care of the earth, but listen, would you stop, if, if you're doing this, would you stop panicking when you hear all these doomsday claims? We're not going to destroy the earth. Hear me clearly, yes, we should take care of it. I'm not saying go out and trash the world. Yes, we should take care of it. But we need to not worry about all these crazy doomsday claims about how the world's going to end. We know how the world's going to end. It's not us, it's him. He told them to take care of the garden. He told them also, look, be fruitful and multiply. We don't need to worry about overpopulation. If you believe the account of creation and you see the incredible hand of God and the complexity of all that God created, you would know that God is not worried about overpopulation. He has a plan for everything. The earth is nowhere close to overpopulation. Oh, but there are people everywhere starving. Yeah, you know why people are starving everywhere? Not because there's not enough. It's because of man's selfishness. We don't properly manage and use our resources. It's not because it's running out. God's made provision for us to live on this earth and to care for this earth. Now, look at the refrain. begins on day three. At the end of each day, you see this refrain. God saw it was what? 
It's good. But now as he concludes creation, at the end of day six, God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. Now, the earth that we live in now is not in the perfect state that God created. It's deteriorating, just like we are. The, the curse of sin has changed everything. There's all, all kinds of evil. There's death. There's suffering. There's violence. There's bloodshed. But in spite of all that that has happened since sin and since the curse, you still see the wonders of God's hand all around you in creation. It's a reminder that God designed the earth to sustain our life. God designed the earth for us to, to live in and enjoy. Think about how God created. I mean, just look around this room. There's a, the vast richness of color. Go out and look at creation and, and see it's God didn't create a black and white world. How boring would that have been? What if God had created a world where everything tasted like broccoli? Smelled like junior high boy locker room sweat. No, he created this vast world. It's not perfect, but he is reminding us every day of the great love that he has for us. And the good news is there's a greater world to come. For those who know him, there's a greater world to come because one day he's going to call us to himself. One day this earth is going to be destroyed by him, not by us. And then there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth that we will dwell in forever. Genesis reminds us of the incredible love of God. Genesis reminds us of his, of his power, of his sovereignty, his omniscience. Just looking at what he created, it draws us to him. But we have to decide if we're going to believe the Genesis account. Or we're going to buy into some of the ridiculous theories that are out there simply because people don't want to acknowledge God. Would you bow with me this morning? I just ask you to, to bow and close your eyes so there's no distraction, no, no looking around, no being disturbed by what others may be doing. Do you believe that the Word of God is infallible? Do you truly believe that the Word of God is infallible? And, and if you would say you do, I would ask you, how does that affect your life on a daily basis? The testimony of Genesis is, is amazing and what it reveals to us about our Creator. Think about those stars again. One septillion. You just fling them out there. He knows them by name. I think there's about seven and a half billion of us on the face of this planet, humans. Far less than one septillion. You think he knows your name? Not just your name, but knows all about you. Your hopes, your dreams, your failures, your, your shortcomings, your, your every need. He's a creator. 
who loves you deeply. But as creator, do you understand that he also has the right to call the shots in your life? You know, culture is becoming more and more hostile to the Word of God and, and the things of God, and that's just going to increase in the days ahead. We, we've got to decide what we believe and let that affect how we live. What you do is what you believe. Everything else is just religious talk. If you believe this is God's Word, then you center your life around this book. Maybe some in this room this morning that have never really contemplated that God created you and therefore has a right to your life. Can I tell you that it's a creator? He knows best how he designed your life to be lived. And apart from him, you will never find the, the purpose and meaning and hope and fulfillment in life that we all work for. God created you, and in spite of your sin, in spite of my sin, he still chose to have a relationship with us by sending Christ to the cross to die for us. And all he calls on us to do is accept the gift of Jesus' payment for our salvation and invite him to be the Lord of our lives. We're through in a few minutes here this morning. There are several pastors around the room, or maybe, maybe you came with a friend who already knows Christ that can tell you, but would you take a moment and just explore what it means to have a personal relationship with the God of the universe? I would say the vast majority of us in this room have a relationship with Christ. But every time we gather and hear from the Word of God, we need to let the Spirit speak to us from His Word. And probably the primary challenge this morning is to answer the question, do I believe the Word of God is infallible? And if I do, am I building my life on His infallible Word? It's going to get more and more difficult in our culture. Now is when we need to gain strength and grow. And let the Spirit of God strengthen us through the Word of God. What's he said to you this morning? How do you need to respond?